I'm absolutely completely chuffed as chips, as they say in England, to have John Waltman here, composer, arranger, photomicrographer, balloonist, raconteur, bon vivant. And, you know, people ask the question, in what way are James Bond and Eric Idle related? And John Altman is the answer because he's written music for both. So I'm so happy to have you here. And, uh, and, I, and I love what you've done with your room. It's, it's uh, very cute. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> it's a little shiny. I mean, if the sun shines in the window too hard, I'd be blinded, but we won't discuss that. It's a very sunny day today, so. Well, it is, yes. Welcome to my special edition of Radio Richard, which is called Musicians Funnies, Musicians Funnies, yes. And, uh -huh. and, and the whole idea of this is funny things that happen to musicians while they're trying to earn a living. So nobody has better stories than John Altman. Seriously, just take it away. Uh, for instance, I met Michel Legrand and I worked with him and he was a charming, brilliant musician, but I wouldn't have called him th that funny, but I'd love to hear your story about him. Well, my Michel Legrand story was told to me by Keith Grant oh. of Olympic Studios. Right. And they were recording the score for the original Thomas Crown affair. Right with uh, Norman Jewison, who of course is still uh, a very competent amateur musician. Wow. And um, the first cue they put together was Windmills of Your Mind. As soon as uh, Norman Jewison heard it, he thought, Oscar, immediately, you know, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Great. So he was in a good mood. So at the end of the session, he goes down onto the floor when all the musicians are packed up. And he says, can I have a look at your score for that, Michelle? <laughs> he says, yeah, no problem. So he's looking at the scores and he says, what's Colenio? He says, well, I'm instructing string players to hit the string with their bow. Oh, okay, I've got that. Um, what about... I know pizzicato. What's this mean? Uh, 16 bars solo a la Stan Getz. And Michel Legrand says, well, it means that the sax player has to play a 16 bar sax solo in the style of Stan Getz. So Norman Jewison says, well, if you want Stan Getz, we'll get you Stan Getz. That's not a problem. And Michelle said, really? You can do that? So of course we can. Uh, our office will phone him tomorrow. So the office ring up and they get through to Stan and they say, Mr. Getz, yes. Michel Legrand is recording the music for the Thomas Crown Affair in London and he'd like you to play a sax solo. And Stan says, yep, well, that's possible. Um, my fee is $15,000. And they go, oh, okay, $15,000. He says, um, I always fly Concorde when I go to the UK, first class. Concorde, first class, no problem. I'm free at the end of May, beginning of June. Oh, okay, well, we had hoped to finish the film by then, but we'll push the schedule back for you. End of May, beginning of June. He says, my jet lag is terrible, so I have to stay for two weeks, minimum. 
Okay, two weeks in London to record 16 bars, no problem. He says, um, I always stay at Claridge's in the <laughs> presidential suite. Uh, yep, we can arrange that, no problem. <clears throat> so this list is getting longer and longer. I can see that, yes. By the way, he says, um, who's the musical director on this? I said, well, we did tell you, uh, Michel Legrand. And Stan says, well, he's got to go. Uh, Duncan Lamont played the 16 bars a la Stan Getz. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you've got something in your notes here which is so enigmatic that I have to ask you. Age concern castanets. I mean, I have no idea what you mean by that. And since it's probably one of the few stories of yours I haven't heard, whip it out, big boy. Well, I was doing a commercial for age concern. Uh, for their winter spot, uh, the basic gist of which was wrap up warm all you elderly people because it's not going to be easy to get through the winter. Right. Voiceover was Dame Thora Heard, who of course was James Tormay's grandmother and Mel Tormay's mother-in-law. Right. And the advertising agency had chosen Morning Has Broken lovely little you know folk song flute and well. spring morning has broken what could be sweeter for the age concerned people i arrive in the recording studio an hour before anybody else easily and the client is already sat there and he has that expression that you come to know you've come to know i'm sure i've come to know it it's the something is very seriously wrong expression. And I'm looking at him and I say, good morning. He says, oh, good morning. And he still looks worried. So I sit down, there's nothing happening. Nobody in the studio, nothing happening. I sit down and I say, is everything all right? And he says, yes. And I said, are you sure? He said, well, you know what you're doing, don't you? <laughs> and I thought, well, yes, I, I hope so. Um, could you be more specific? He says, we're doing an advert for age concern. I said, yes, I know that. With Thora Heard, uh, yes, I know. And morning has broken. I said, yep, yep, that's right, that's correct. You know what you're doing, don't you? And I said, well, I, I do hope I do know what I'm doing. And he suddenly says, only, could you answer me one thing? I said, yeah, sure. He said, how loud will you have those castanets? And I said, uh, I'm sorry. He said, how loud will you have those castanets? And I said, there are no castanets on this track. It is flute, harp, and strings. As we discussed, morning has broken. He says, okay, you know what you're doing. At that moment, the tape-op in the studio, uh, Jeff Young, the engineer, says, try number six, please, Mike. And Mike goes up to the microphone and scratches it. 
Oh my goodness. And the guy goes, there! <laughs> Just <in this. laughs> Yeah, that's just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, we could do an entire show, I think, just on doing jingles. Oh, absolutely right. Um, my One of my favorites was going in, you know, you, you always dreaded going in for the first playback. Oh, yes. Because that's when people would comment and you absolutely hope that the musicians won't follow you in to hear what, what the sound's like. But on this particular day, of course, they all followed me into the control room at Lansdowne. And yeah. you remember, you had to go up the stairs. Stairs, yes, that's right. So they're all trooped in <clears> and <throat> silence, you know. And I said to the, it was the director of the film, it's for cheese. Uh, I can't remember if it was processed cheese or what it was. Yes. And I said, uh, how do you, any opinions on the track? And he said, um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought, uh oh, this sounds this is gonna be good. Yeah, yeah, it's always a good one. It seems to start at the beginning <laughs> and go all the way through very nicely until the end when it finishes. <laughs> and I said, Well, I I have to tell you, it's the only way I know how to write music. <laughs> Meanwhile, the laughter behind me, the stifled giggles, if you can imagine. Oh, I can imagine them well. I would, I would have been giggling. Richard, Roy Jones, and, you know, they're all having hysterics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I thought, what a great definition of writing music. Yes, yeah, starting at the beginning, yeah. Well, it goes all the way through until the end when it finishes. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Jingles. It's the, the thing is, I don't think most people will understand who aren't musicians and aren't musicians who have worked on TV and radio commercials is that you have a number of opinions. When you're making a record, you have the producer's opinion pretty much. And to, to a certain extent, the artist's opinion, if the artist is a really big artist and if they bother to show up at the session. But, but with jingles, you've got all these people, for instance, you've got the creatives. Don't you just love that word, yes. John? The creatives. So it's their job to act as if they are creative, even when they're not. Yeah. And, and so, so you have to, you have the, the arranger or the, the composer has to kind of listen to their opinions with some idea that they know what they're talking about. Well, this is the problem. I, I, I remember doing a commercial for Land Rover for the States because also you, you, you do like to think that particularly American clients are going to be more savvy about the ways of music. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Well, I don't know. American advertising, particularly older American <laughs> advertising. Oh, right. So we, we have this guy there, very nice guy, and it's Land Rover. It's a commercial that I don't think ever aired, which I'm not too surprised about. <laughs> and it's a, a sort of tiger walking through Los Angeles on a leash. And the idea was that when you buy a Land Rover, you unleash the tiger 
you know. I see, yes, lovely. Yes, great idea. And it's 60 second commercial. Mm. And they said, we think we want a sort of jazz trio, a sort of Oscar Peterson type thing. I thought, great, right up my street. Mm -hmm. um, I did a sort of match the tempo of the walking of the tiger and did a very nice piano trio track. Nice. Great. Everyone was happy. Sounds great. Lovely, lovely. Love it. This one guy then says, what would it sound like without the piano? <clears throat> and I said, well, it will sound like a walking bass for 60 seconds. A bit dull. Yes. He said, that, can we hear it? I said, well, you're paying the money. You can hear whatever you want to hear. Absolutely. Double bass and drums. <clears throat> My heart is sinking, of course. We get to the end. And he says, I quite like that. And I think, oh, no, please. <laughs> don't, don't like it. You know, whatever you do, don't like it. He said, I'd like to try one more thing. I said, uh, yeah, okay, uh, what would that be? He said, what would it sound like if it was just the drums? Yeah. And I said, well, it would sound like somebody playing a brush's rhythm quite slowly for 60 seconds. It, without actually playing any fills or anything, it would be quite boring. He said, yeah, I'd like to hear it though. Yes. There's another 60 seconds. Drumming. And when I say drumming, I don't mean in like uh, Birdman, you know, an interesting... Oh, no, no, no. no. I, I literally mean... Right, exactly. For a minute. You know, and it's bad enough for 10 seconds, but for right. a minute, it's... it's <laughs> he, he then says, mix them all. I like them all. I'm going to take them away and I'll decide later. <laughs> And we had to spend time mixing a solo soundtrack. <laughs> yes, right. Extraordinary. I'm, I'm actually surprised that he didn't ask for, what would it sound like without the drums? Well, I thought that was next. Yeah, thought, yeah, that could have been next, yes. I know. Well, Lloyd, Lloyd Elliott, top studio trombonist <laughs> in Hollywood, Sinatra, you name it. He's on every record, every TV show. And uh, a lovely man. Uh, the story gets bizarre because I was playing in a pop prom, which was a TV show in Preston in Lancashire, which is hardly on the beaten track for no. anyone. No. Frankie Lane was in it, um, Benny King, Marty Wilde, there were all kinds of people. And um, Lloyd was on a motoring holiday in the UK and happened to sort of uh, drive by and see a sign that said today TV recording international pop prom. So he stuck his head in in case he knew anyone. And bingo, he got lucky because there's Frankie Lane and Ray Barr and me. Right. So we were swapping stories as we tend to do. Mm. And um, I was just mentioning what an out-of-the-way place Preston was for him to suddenly show up in. And he said, well, that reminds me of a story where I was doing a Sinatra session in uh, Los Angeles and also playing the 
Dean Martin show in Las Vegas that night. So as soon as the session finished, I jumped in my car and I shot off to get to Vegas. And in those days, you know, the road was pretty clear. So I put my foot down and he said, I'm doing about, I really am doing about 110, 120 miles an hour right. on a completely deserted road. Right. Suddenly this electroglide cop pulls out of a turning and waves me down and he's got the dark glasses on yeah. and everything. And he knocks on the window and Lloyd w winds down the window <laughs> and the cop says to him, I've been waiting for you all day. And Lloyd looks up and says, well, I got here as fast as I could. Oh, great. And the, the, the policeman laughed and let him off. That's, oh, that's fantastic. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. That's, that's a feel-good story indeed. Yeah. Um, we were doing a commercial, and there was a a client there and she kept saying I want it to sound like Phil Collins an instrumental track and we got the drum sound and we got the the rhythm sound you know Phil was very big then yes no 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 it doesn't sound like Phil Collins got to go back and do it again oh, second boy. time no 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 it doesn't sound uh. third time no 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 so I turned to her and said to me, it sounds like Phil Collins. Could you just explain exactly what you want? And she went, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Right. And I went, uh, yeah, that's singing. We don't have singing. Right. We have right. instrumental. Her two underlings at the agency got so fed up, they broke into her office, stole my original track, took it to the main boss who heard it, went, that's great, I like that, put it out and fired her. Nice, wow. That's the last we'll ever see of her. Blow me down six months later, she shows up again at another agency with another production job and oh, oh no. Oh no, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> know, I had a woman like that. I, I did a jingle. It was a German client, but there was a British woman who was uh, who was in charge of the thing. And she had said, and this is quite funny because I could have just called you up, but I, I said, okay, what do you want? And they said, we want to use the Monty Python track. And we want somebody who sounds like Eric Idle, always look on the bright side of life. But we must have it sound very, very much like that. I knew, a, I knew a guy called John Savannah who used to do a really, really perfect Eric Idle impression. He can do the voice really well. And I hired Mitch and, and Mitch told me the other guys who were on the session. And we had all the guys and I just transcribed. We only needed something like 45 seconds of it or whatever it was that it was. Uh, and I just transcribed what you had written originally, <laughs> and uh, and and we recorded it. And and I had a really good engineer who matched all the sounds. Everything was matched to the T. And I gave it to the woman, and she said, "This is nothing like Bright Side of Life. This doesn't sound anything like it." And she says, 
that I'm, I'm not accepting that that just and I said okay well let, let me go in and do a remix and uh so I went in and we did a remix and we a beat the tracks they were a they were even running in sync yeah and and uh she, I took it back to her and she said you know you were recommended to me as somebody who was good this isn't this is not a professional job I'm not paying for this this is this is crap this is nothing like it. It's miles away from the original track. So I said, all right, I'll tell you what, give me one more chance to do a remix on this. And she said, oh, all right, then I shouldn't. Because, you know, this is just crap. And you're obviously a complete incompetent. I mean, she was really rude and much ruder than that. But I, I don't want to use foul language on, on yeah. uh, this is a family show. So <clears throat> What I did was I went into the studio and edited the original track that you did of Right Side of Life. The exact <laughs> section, but I edited it and that, that was it. And then I gave it to her. It was the original track. And she said, well, it's still miles away, but I suppose it's usable. What can you do? Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, I have a not not the same example whatsoever but um uh johnny depp who probably is very much not the person we should talk about anymore i don't know <laughs> but um he had covered a django reinhardt track on an album very ineptly yes it, it, it wasn't brilliant let's Singing, say playing what was he doing he was playing guitar he, oh wow playing Django's original solo. Wow. But not quite right. Not right, yes, yeah. So the clients came in and said, we've got this great Johnny Depp track. And I said to them, well, yeah, you realize that this is not an original Johnny Depp track. This is a Django Reinhardt improvisation that he's copied. No, we didn't realize that. I said, yeah, well, I can book uh, John Etheridge, who's a, who does a great Django Reinhardt impersonation, and he'll get it exactly spot on. And we had the same thing, you know, A, B, identical, identical, identical. And they went away and I got the message. They bought the Johnny Depp track. Of course, well, it's him too. They could use the publicity that he was- No, doing. they didn't even have publicity. They just had this music playing behind the commercial badly that nobody actually knew what it was you know man it's it's probably cocktail parties you know that meant that the creatives could go to cocktail parties and say yeah. oh we've just done a commercial with johnny depp playing guitar oh really how interesting you know well let's get back to um chris lawrence one of the greatest bass players in the history of bass players and yes. and a lovely fellow and a genius and but you've got a story about him so i'm dying to hear it well chris comes from a very famous british musical family yes the, the goosens family uh, leon goosens was the great oboe player eugene goosens was a great conductor and uh, both sydney and mari goosens were the first call harp players for years and years. In fact, I think both of them made a hundred and were still working right up to the end. Um, one of them was Chris's grandmother. Right. And 
did his first session for the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields when he was 17. So he's standing next to his grandmother right. and turns to her while they're tuning up and says, give me an A, Grandma. <laughs> the conductor goes berserk. How dare you talk to that woman like that? You young people have no respect. She is one of the greatest musicians and you're a young whippersnapper. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and Chris goes, but she's my grandma. <laughs> Fantastic. Boy, uh, that, those kinds of things don't happen every day. <laughs> no, no. Give it to my grandma. Yeah, I'm amazed and in awe and wonder that you've got an Aaron Copeland story. So. Well, this is a good one. Um, this was told to me by the great jazz pianist and songwriter Dave Frischberg. Great. And Dave was playing in the Benny Goodman Sextet in 1976. And that's important, 1976. Okay. All right. With George Benson as the guest guitarist. Nice. So the first half of the show was Benny Goodman's Sextet featuring George Benson. The second half of the show was Aaron Copeland's Clarinet Concerto played by Benny Goodman with Aaron Copeland <clears throat> conducting. Whoa. So Dave's then girlfriend was a music major and she's standing in the wings listening to the Benny Goodman Sextet and she becomes aware that there's somebody behind her. So she looks around, it's Aaron Copeland. God. Uh -huh. so they start talking. Aaron Copeland says, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I, I'm the girlfriend of the pianist. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, I love the group. I love the band. I love the music. And they get quite chatty. Suddenly, Copeland stops her in mid-sentences. What's that? And she says, uh, it's a guitar solo. He goes, no, 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 that. She says, yeah, it's a guitar. No, 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 <laughs> Now she's like paranoid because she thinks, what's he hearing that I can't hear? You know, the great Aaron Copeland. Right. I'm going to flunk out because I don't know what he's talking about. So she thinks I'll make one last effort. So she says, it's George Benson is playing an electric guitar solo. And Aaron Copeland shakes his head and goes, electric guitar? What on earth will they think of next? Oh my God. <laughs> That's incredible. Which, which is why 1976 is important. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> You'd think that by 1956, <laughs> that would be. <laughs> electric guitar. <laughs> yeah, good heavens. Yeah. Who thought of that? Amazing. Which leads on to another story that um, uh, Percy Granger was teaching at the Eastman School of Music. Very eccentric man, you know, made his own clothes out of tea towels and nice. everything. And he was extremely old. So they lost him one day. He didn't show up for class. So everyone got very worried because he was like 87, 88 years old. Mm -hmm. So they went to search the whole town and uh, all his class was, you know, one was in the drugstore 
one one went in the clothes shop, and one guy went into the local cinema. And there was Percy Granger sitting in the front row. So he goes up to him and says, uh, Mr. Granger, uh, sorry to disturb you, but uh, we're missing your class. And he went, shush, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down. <laughs> so the guy sat down and looked at the screen and on came the movie, Rock Around the Clock. <laughs> so he's going, what, what? You know, what on earth? He says, it's coming, it's coming. On come Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys playing Giddy Up a Ding Dong. Okay. And Granger goes, look, look, electric bass guitar. I've sat through this film four times today. <laughs> Just to see this. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Well, you remember, you know, the yeah. Fred Bell, they've, they've, they've got the electric bass. I, I, seriously, you know, I have said in the past uh, that, you know, it's true that classical musicians are sometimes, sometimes out of touch with what's going on. And people say, oh, how dare you say that? You know, that's a terrible thing to say. But it's actually true. You know, certain people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that when I first started, I don't know, I'm sure this is true for you. When I first started, um, I came to London in 1975 to start working. And I had terrible trouble with string sections following a click. Because yep. just, that's was not, I mean, you'd think by 1975 that they had played to clicks in, in movies and stuff like that. But, but I had terrible trouble. And it wasn't until I started working with Gavin Wright, yep. who used to audition anybody who was going to play everyone. in everyone, he'd audition them with a click. And he and he'd say, you know, if they can't play to the click, and and uh, in fact, I was very, I was very uh, honored that he used some of my parts, because he said, your parts are torturous. And uh, if they can play those, they can play anything. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I had exactly the same experience with um I was on a session where uh, the string players were trying to play a triplet figure that went across the beat. So it was bump, 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 They couldn't do it. And Chris Warren Green, who was then about 17, sat at the back, came up to me and said, you shouldn't have to put up with this. Let me book your string sections. Right. From then on, Chris would brought in Gavin and all the younger players, right, you know, right. who could do it all and were interested in what you were doing. And they weren't sitting there with a watch. Yes, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Facing I, them. So they stopped playing in the middle of a tape to go out, right. you know, at the end of the session. You know, I would do TV shows when I first came to, to England and, and uh, I did some TV shows. I remember when I was doing uh, Leo Sayer's TV show, I had to say to the orchestra that I had, hey guys, uh, can you please use paper money rather than coins? Because they were gambling, you know, they were playing cards and gambling in the, within the string section. And I said, could you please use paper money? Because it's, it's making noise. We can hear it on the, on the recording. Uh, so that's how interested they were, you know. Uh, Talking of classical players out of touch or classical composers, I, I was booked to do a commercial to shadow Sir Michael Tippett who was writing the commercial. Mm -hmm. 
who could not write to timings. No. He just couldn't do it. And eventually, you know, it all, almost in tears said, right. I, I don't know how to do this. I can't right. do it. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, because it's it's a different type of training and a different type of, you know, set of, I guess, uh, uh, targets that they have to hit yeah. uh, when they're when well, they're being trained. You know, the famous Andre Previn story, which was that um, I, I think Mitch was on this, but I, I think it was Shelley Mann and a couple of others, Ray Brown and Andre came in. It was the LSO and said, good morning, gentlemen. Today we are recording with these players. They're the finest jazz players in the world. So you're just going to have to keep up. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had an experience like that when I was doing uh, a BBC concert for uh, Michael McDonald live at the Mermaid Theatre. And I had, to, I, ha I had no choice in the matter. I had to use the BBC Concert Orchestra. Yes. And I was noticing that, I mean, I had Ian Thomas playing drums, so you know that it's perfect, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and they were consistently, during rehearsals, they were consistently way behind. First thing I said was, um, I'd like you all to in be introduced to Ian Thomas. He's a very fine drummer. You're supposed to play to him. Now, I assume that both, most of you have, you know, played to a metronome as, you know, when you were tr learning how to play. He's the metronome, play to him. I had to explain that to them. Yeah. They said, oh, well, we find that annoying. So then, then I went up to them and I said, I just want to find out if you can play this section of 16th notes in time. So I, I, I did this, I was snapping my fingers and trying to get them to play the 16th notes exactly, and they couldn't do it. And, and the leader of the section said, stop that infernal clicking. That's very <laughs> annoying. We can't be expected to play while that's going on. <laughs> I mean, that was the attitude. That was the attitude. I mean, I, I, I remember conducting, um, it was a classical orchestra, I think, in um, Thousand Oaks, I think. And it really was like dragging a cart horse. Yes. Because, you know, they slowed down, so you naturally want to try and push them forward. So you, you get so far ahead of yourself that you've yeah. lost that's, and then they slow down even more because yeah, that's the highway to hell. You you'll never get anywhere that way. Yeah, I, I love that expression. I think it was attributed to Phil Seaman that playing in the hair band was like dragging the Queen Mary through a sea of Mars bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, terrible. Okay, let, but let's get back to a to a John Altman story. Yes. This has got to be funny just because the word crematorium is in it. <coughs> a friend of mine was booked to play organ at a cremation. Nice. And the chapel didn't have an organ, so they hired a keyboard. And he got there early and set it all up with the, you know, the church organ sound and the solemn bit of whatever yes 
went and sat in the general public during all the speeches and moved to the keyboard in time to do the, you know, coffin disappearing through the, the curtains. Yes. What he found out was that somebody had pulled out the plug, the mains plug, and replaced it. So the keyboard had gone off completely, losing right. all the settings. Right. So he switched it on. It immediately began playing the rhythm section samba. <laughs> that he couldn't stop because he oh. didn't know how to make it stop. So <laughs> as this coffin sort of curtains opened, you got he's frantically hitting every button and it won't stop it won't stop yeah yeah <laughs> I, i've actually had that happen <clears throat> so so i know how that can be and it's panic i mean the, uh, at least i knew enough to turn it off but but well, uh, i mean by the time he turned it off it was too late but yeah the great, the great follow-up, of course, is that all the family and friends thought this was the most wonderful thing that, uh, you know, the deceased had requested that he go off to a samba. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, what, well, that's, that, that would have been a really good way out of it, yeah. Yeah, and of course, um, he didn't actually play a note because the whole time was spent trying to shut this thing up. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> So none, none, all, all it was, it's, you know, it's an indictment of those machines that play themselves because you can't stop it. You know, if you don't know how to, you're not going to stop it. No. I mean, the, the other story um, that's related to that, I think, uh, was uh, my big band had a gig out in a festival in a park. And the keyboard player brought along a DX7, which at the time was quite new. Uh -huh. And again, he didn't really know his way around. And one of my arrangements, it builds up to a, a big moment when there's a Hammond organ solo, which he pushed what he assumed was the Hammond organ switch. Right. In fact, what he got was the flexitone, <laughs> which is, I should explain to anyone who's not a musician, it's the noise that Bugs Bunny makes when... Um, He's hit on the head by a, a 10 pound weight. Yes. And not only was it one flexitone, he launched into his solo. So sure. you've got 100 flexitones going boingy, 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 boingy. <laughs> well, this probably he would have got away with had the whole band not actually had a stop that for two bars that started his solo. Exactly. And of course, nobody could come back in because of the boingy, boingy, boing. Somehow we got to the end of the chorus and the beginning of the next one, when by which time he had switched to the Hammond organ, or so he thought. <laughs> it happened again. <laughs> More Bugs Bunny falling downstairs. Fantastic. Wonderful. Fantastic. Well, we, we've come to the part of um, this wonderful uh, joke fest when I do my five questions, and I still haven't, <clears throat> I still haven't thought of a clever little uh, thing to call this, but I'm going to just ask you five questions, and you're going to give me five quick-fire answers. They're sort okay. of musician-related questions. Right. The first question is, 
coffee or any other type of food? I don't drink coffee, so wow. I would say I would say tea. Tea. Okay, good, great. Uh, with that, so so tea or any other type of food. Chinese. Okay, Chinese. Nice. Good. Okay. Second question: fees or royalties? What's royalties? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's why <laughs> I asked the question. Yes, I've heard of them, but I don't think I've ever seen them. Yeah. Third question, clubs or concerts? Uh, jazz in clubs, I think. Yes. Um, classical music in concerts, but um, I, pr I prefer being in a club hearing somebody perform. Yeah, well, I mean, playing as, as a player, of course. I'm you a player, yes, clubs. Although play. I have done some memorable concerts that I remember very well. Right, right. I'm sure, I'm yeah, sure that's true. But... You know, which is a thrill. Yeah. Uh, which I did with Quincy Jones. You know, how could that be bettered? You can't really beat that, I don't think. I don't think that's possible to beat that. Um, my next question. Practice the saxophone or have lunch? <laughs> well, I wish I practiced the saxophone more than I do. So in, in an ideal world, I'd be practicing like, like fury, but um, I think I'd probably rather have lunch. <laughs> well, that's why I asked the question. Uh, and none of us get as much of a chance to practice as we'd like. And certainly, you know, if you're a writer primarily, you, you, you're putting digital dots on paper, you know. Yeah, uh, I, my, my uncle, who is a great arranger, of course, actually said to me, have you given up playing yet? This is years ago in the 90s, you know, and sure. I said, no, he said, you will, you will. You will, and yeah. actually spurred me to keep, to play more because yeah. I thought, you know what, I have almost given up playing. Mm. Yeah. So I, I forced myself to get out there. At one time, I, I did kind of give up playing, but I, I just enjoyed it too much. And now I play more than ever, uh, just because, I, because it's fun. And, and I've decided, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm of a certain age and I want to have fun. I, I deserve to have fun. Why not? I agree. I agree a hundred percent, you know, and, although. And one, it, thing that, one thing that pisses me off is we have never been on a stage together or played together music. No. We know each other very well, and and but because we're both writers, the most that I've ever done with you is you were walking out of a Tina Turner session, and you just finished your arrangements, and I was walking in. That's the only time yeah. I remember actually, you know, being in the. Well, actually, I might have been in the studio with you before in a similar situation, but that's got to change. I agree. I agree. And, I mean, it's 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 quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's sort of. Um, it's a very strange thing. And when I joined ASMAC, which you know well, the yeah. Arrangers Society. Yes. I was, I was quite amazed at how many of the people there didn't actually know any of the other people there. Right, 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 because right. They, they knew who they were, but they weren't like bosom buddies or anything like that. And I, could, I can see why over a career, you know, when you're doing the same thing, Right. You actually don't relate to people because you're doing the same thing. 
since then, some of them have become great friends. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to talk to people who do the same sort of job as you and have had the same terrible and funny uh, yeah. <laughs> experiences that you've had. So I'm going to get to, I've got to get to the last question of my five fickle okay. of fate. I've still got to think of a name for these five questions. But anyway, here's the, here's the last question. Invoice or cash? <laughs> uh, that's a tricky one. Can I can I tell a quick story about um, percussion? Oh, please do. Please do. Please do. So uh, there was a session going on at Trident Studios, another one that we remember well. That's no yes, longer very well. No longer there. And. Um, Tony Carr, wonderful percussionist, was on it, as were a lot of our friends, um, Pete Van Hook, and I think Mo was on it. Right. Ray Russell, uh, all, all kinds of people. And it was for, at the time, they did a lot of music for French clients. All the French disco records were done there. Nice. So um, they're setting up, <laughs> and um, this artist singer comes down and and everyone stops what they're doing and he sort of beckons them around and he says um today we uh, excuse my french accent oh, please. today we record a song i write for my one true love we had so many romantic years together but then she got very sick and she died. And everybody was like, oh God, you know, silent. Except for Tony Carr, who's setting up his gear, who turns around and says, never mind all that. Who do we make the invoice out to? <laughs> That's oh, fantastic, fantastic. But, um, you know, <laughs> the only time we did a bunch, of, which you must have done, a bunch of sessions for Japan. Oh, yes. Where they turn up with a, well, they did, and uh, they turned up with a, a, a sort of suitcase full of cash. <laughs> well, no, I never had that. I never oh, had yeah. that. I mean, it, 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 it was nice, but I mean, I, I would have quite, actually quite liked to seen. I, I I actually got the meaning of inscrutable because you could never tell if they were happy, sad, you know, if yeah, they liked yeah. you, if they didn't like you. Yeah. At the end, they would bow and open this case. And everybody, I think we had to invoice because it was the RPO, you know. Yes, yes. Sort of, but they, they would pay every everybody in cash. Wow, well, I, I never had that experience, but I wish I had. Yeah, uh, yeah. The good old folding green. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Well, I... I, I have a funny idea. It might have been in dollars as well. I can't remember. So well, long ago. Even better. Well, I, I've always had a yen for dollars. Ah. So ah. I, I'm thinking of ending this with a chance for you to ask me one question. A question you've uh, always wanted to ask me. I, I am interested... I see your book, The Invisible Artist, which I love. Which you're in, which a whole chapter is devoted to John Altman in this wonderful book. Please buy it and give me a chance to send my 
boy through college. Thank you. My question is probably about that book, which, which was, did you actually, without naming any names, were you disappointed by any of the people you interviewed in terms of you went away thinking, oh, oh, I didn't really enjoy that. Or did you find everybody a joy? Because we're all, we're all doing the same thing. I, well, first of all, <clears throat> first of all, doing that, that uh, book was such a joy for me from the point of view that, you know, it started life as a radio series. I did a lot of documentaries yeah. for the BBC where I was writing them and presenting them. And I, I gave this idea to the BBC of, look, arrangers, nobody knows what an arranger is. Nobody has any idea if I say I'm an arranger. And we, we talked about this in our interview yeah, at the yeah. time, you know, nobody knows what it is. So I said, uh, I'd like to do something on some of the great musical arrangers. So I did this show called Richard Niles History of Pop Arranging. Because mm -hmm. in jazz, everybody knows these guys. But when I, and then I had to research. Now your knowledge always blows me away because you really know every person who played on every record ever made in pretty much every style. So I'm completely in awe of your uh, knowledge on these subjects. And, and uh, but, but I had to research and try to find out who played on what records. And as you also know, it was difficult on some records like Motown, Barry Gordy did not want the names of any musicians on the records uh, or the arrangers credits because he didn't want somebody to steal Motown sound. Uh, so, so anyway, I, I did the research and I, as I was doing the research, I was just amazed at all this stuff. And then when I got the chance to interview certain people, I must say I was pretty much overjoyed to be able to uh, yeah. talk to them. And no, I, I also got to do, uh, to talk to people who had worked with some of my favorite arrangers. So I, so I, I got two views of it. I got the view from like, for instance, right here, said he picking this up. This is Jerry Wexler. Yes, of course. And when I was at his house, he gave me this very nice picture of himself signed. And, uh, he, he told me about working with all the great people he'd worked with, like Harold Batiste, uh, like Arif Martin, uh, Jesse Stone. So yeah, it was just a complete knockout for me. And I, I was, I can't say I was disappointed with anybody. Some of the stories that they told me, I really couldn't tell, especially the Jeremy Lubbock stories. I had, <laughs> I had to change the names to protect the guilty. Absolutely. Well, Jer Jeremy wasn't shy of calling a spade a spade. Oh no, certainly not. And every other every other implement in the garden too. Yes. What, what, what was interesting to me, just following on from that, nobody, as you say, really knows what an arranger is. But also, it is so hard to find out information about either about who arranged a classic track, rock track that you like or who they were and what happened to them. A case in point for me is that great Etta James record, At Last, right. which is arranged by Riley Hampton. Huh. I have no idea who Riley Hampton is. No. You can't find anything about him anywhere. 
no there there's there are so many obviously like it i guess like any area of music there's so many people that we don't hear about and i've always found it fascinating to look behind the scenes as you have yeah. Uh, yeah. to see how, you know i always want to know how something was done and why it was done right. not just that it was done you know well, I, we're, we're we're very much the same in that our approach to making a pop record let's call it let's stay with that for the moment was always a how do we do what the artist wants without sounding like everybody else who's ever written for them right. but not sounding like we're trying to impose what we do on them yes. so it's a very fine balance yes but also why did other people who work with these performers do what they did and Indeed. how did they do it and why are they suppressed in terms of as we said you know if you talk about dancing in the street you you stop eight out of ten people in the street and say sing dancing in the street and they'll go ba -ba -da 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 -bum. exactly yes they won't go calling out around what well, one of them might but i yeah. mean that's no, what they'll I mean, the hook this is this is the central point of my whole book, and I'm glad that people have reacted to it positively and been interested to look behind the scenes with me on this. A lot of people have also said to me, and I'm sure they've said it to you, well, who cares about who did what and who cares about who wrote this and who cares about how, let's just enjoy the music. Well, I enjoy yeah. it more knowing these things. You I know. agree. I agree. I, when I listen to to Frank Sinatra records that I love, I enjoy it more knowing about Milt Bernhardt, for instance, or knowing about Irv Kotler, or knowing about the musicians that that he used on those sessions. And I'm sure you do too. But you know, I mean, this is it's an uphill battle, and and uh, we could do a whole nother show on arranging, and I hope we do. Uh, and I hope you'll also come back and. Uh, do another musician's funny stories because I know we've only scratched the surface of your story, Absolutely. and Absolutely. and uh, yeah, there's so many more I want you to tell. I explained to somebody in great detail what an arranger does, and feeling very proud that they were following me every step of the way. The final thing they said was, "So, do you write the words as well as the music?" It's a losing battle, man. It's a losing battle. And, and, and even people who have read my book who are not, you know, are not arrangers, they still don't quite get it, you know. But, but anyway, you know, it's an art form and we, we live in it and uh, uh, we do our best in the circumstances. Absolutely. But uh, anyway, John Altman, I'm absolutely grateful that you've done this and please let's do it again. And uh, everything is very groovy. My pleasure. Okay, great, man. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Okay. Hey, lover. Thinking of getting up close and intimate with your loved one tonight for a bit of romantic fooling around? Forget it, because I'm Richard Niles, and instead of playing Lady Penelope and the Butler, you could be under the covers listening to my podcast, Radio Richard, intriguing interviews and procreating performances from master musicians like Bob James, Lawrence Juber, Michael Brecker, or Leo Sayer. Hey. 
If you're not shagged out after that, there's always time for a little bit of uh, fun and games afterwards. Don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard.